This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. Learn more about their momentum at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. It's State of Ukraine from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel with NPR's best reporting on a war that's changing the world. Russian troops set their sights on Ukraine's capital city as it began its invasion. But weeks later, they failed to take Kyiv. So Moscow has pulled them back. Now, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russian forces are regrouping and preparing for a major assault on the country's east. New satellite images show a miles-long military convoy of armored vehicles and trucks. And U.S. officials are warning that Russia's tactics could become even more brutal. So what can people in eastern Ukraine expect? To understand that, we turn to a Ukrainian city recently besieged by Russian forces. They've now retreated, leaving devastation behind them. NPR's Becky Sullivan takes us to the northern city of Chernihiv and shows us what happened there. It's cold and rainy out here on the outskirts of Chernihiv, but two brothers, Ivan and Volodymyr Mekshin, are here anyway, digging through a big pile of debris that used to be their home. They used to run an auto repair business out of their family garage, he says, but it was totally destroyed by the bombing. Now, all they can do is look for what tools they can find that might still be here, buried under all the wood and metal. Maybe we'll build something else. What else can we do? For a month, Russian forces encircled Chernihiv. It's about 55 miles from the Russian border and even closer to Belarus. Ukrainian officials say the population of Chernihiv was held hostage. Russia, they said, was purposefully making civilians suffer to increase their leverage in negotiations. During the siege, there was no heat, no water, no food, and no escape because eventually all the bridges leading out of town were destroyed. The single deadliest strike came in early March, said Mayor Vladislav Atroshenko, an airstrike that landed right in the center of town. People saw that aircraft flying at a very low altitude, something like 300, 400, 500 meters the maximum, and there was no one cloud in the sky. The sun was shining brightly. So the pilot would have clearly seen what was below him, the mayor says. A pharmacy, a hospital, apartment buildings all around. It's not any mistake. It's not just by chance. The strike was actually caught on video. Footage from somebody's dash cam. They're driving up the street and through the windshield. You can see the bombs dropping. Almost 50 people were killed in a single strike. Amnesty International investigated and said it could constitute a war crime. Walking around even a month later, the damage was hard to look at. Giant holes in apartment buildings, walls peeled clean off, rubble and burned out cars everywhere. Just a couple hundred yards away, Nina Kotiar said she was sheltering in the basement of her apartment building when it happened. We're lucky we went down in time, she says. The whole building shook so hard, her windows blew out, she said. Even in the basement, little bits of brick and cement fell from the walls and ceiling. Her best friend and sister-in-law, Lyudmila, lives a mile or so away. She heard the strike and saw the smoke rising. It was very, very scary. Very scary, she says. With no phone connection, it was impossible to check on anyone, to know if they were alive. 
Lyudmila says, when I heard the bombs, I ran here because I was so worried about Nina. <laughs> Nina says, when she got here, she started to hug and kiss me, saying, you're alive. She ran under the bombs to check if we were alive. They apologize for getting so emotional. <laughs> Over the past few weeks, the Kremlin has ramped up its false narrative about fascism and Nazism in Ukraine. The U.S.-based Institute for the Study of War says that could be a way to prepare the Russian public to accept more atrocities against Ukrainian civilians. For now, here in Chernihiv, the siege seems to be over. There are no Russian troops left, no more airstrikes. Nina Kotiar is still living in the basement with her 85-year-old mother. All her windows were blown out, she says, so you can't really live there. To be honest, we're fed up with life in the basement, she says. And excuse the details, but we haven't been able to wash ourselves for a month and a half. But things are good now, they say. They can be outside like this when the weather allows. We laugh because it's cold and rainy, but still it's better than sheltering from airstrikes. She's trying to figure out a way to get out of Chernihiv, maybe to her daughter in Amsterdam. But for now, Nina says, the trees are going to bloom soon, and everything's going to be all right. Becky Sullivan, NPR News, Chernihiv. Diplomats around the world are hoping to broker an end to Russia's war in Ukraine, but warn it may go on for months, if not years. That has scientists in the Arctic worried. The rift with Russia over Ukraine is setting back research on climate change. Key work in the Arctic has ground to a halt in part because Russia currently chairs the International Arctic Council. NPR's Quill Lawrence takes us to the Arctic Circle in Norway. Working in the Arctic is dangerous. Norwegian Coast Guard crew insisted NPR's team put on Arctic survival suits before a short ride on a skiff outside the city of Tromsø. It's like a combination between a wetsuit and a snowsuit, designed to keep you alive in the water for maybe an hour while you get rescued. Aboard the ship, a conversation about search and rescue quickly turns to a conversation about fish. So there is a fishery cooperation between uh, Norway and Russia. Captain Paul Bratback rescues fishermen from any nation as they follow cod around the Arctic Ocean. The cod, the cod fishes, they don't see the border. So we help every boat in our area. Management of the Barents Sea cod fleet is considered a success worldwide, both economically and environmentally, says Bratback. And that's important for Norway and European Union and the NATO and the whole world. And it's important for the Russians. But he worries things are different since Ukraine. The Coast Guard also enforces the fishing laws. Years ago, in a rare case, a Russian trawler fled from a Coast Guard ship with Norwegian inspectors on board into Russian waters. Back then, Russian authorities promptly arrested the captain and returned the inspectors. Captain Bratback hopes the same cooperation would happen today. In these days, Russian can use other methods to negotiate, like the Ukraine uh, conflict. They are willing to use more power than uh, the talking. Captain Bratback says he's not too worried. These fishermen know their work depends on cooperation. The same goes with scientists. One of the important issues up here is, of course, climate change. Kim Holman is with the Norwegian Polar Institute in Tromsø, where the International Arctic Council would normally be coordinating climate research. 
Well, the, the Arctic Council's office is in this building, and they are, of course, on hold. It's not a, something you can point at that failed today, but it's ongoing. Holman has worked on Arctic climate science for over 30 years, collaborating across the border. Russia has about half the world's Arctic landmass, including permafrost, that, if it melts, could release megatons of trapped carbon and greenhouse gases. Scientists like Holman count on their Russian colleagues. I mean, we have common publications. We have uh, collected data together. We've been on each other's cruises. I've been to people's homes in St. Petersburg. Not only than scientific, but uh, good friends. At the moment, Holman isn't in contact with those friends. The lesson from back in Soviet days is that communication will only get them into trouble which would delay getting back to work. Elana Wilson-Rowe with the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs in Oslo says the drive to sanction Russia has pushed aside scientific cooperation. And at some point in the future when something has changed within Russia or reached some sort of accord with Ukraine, there's a chance that science cooperation might be one of the first things to come back online. But she warns some things may not come back. Some Russian academics have surprised her with full-throated endorsements of Vladimir Putin's war. And Russia has ambitions in the warming Arctic. That includes control of the Northeast Passage, which would cut shipping time between China and Europe, and exploiting newly accessible oil and mineral wealth. Russia's pariah status may not bode well for international cooperation on climate, says Professor Rowe. As the situation changes and hopefully improves for the people of Ukraine, there will be some opening But I think it will certainly feel like a new chapter in Arctic cooperation and is probably a very chilly one. Polar scientists are used to the cold. Kim Holman says the Arctic is in danger, but he knows his Russian colleagues also want to save it. We hope and wish to pick up when it thaws. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Tromsø, Norway. Milton Gavada and Mark Rivers produced, and Catherine Laidlaw edited this episode of State of Ukraine. I'm Leila Falden. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLlearning.com. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.